Hello. Hi. How are you? Did you see the Grammys? A couple nights ago, that Lizzo speech, though. Oh, man. I don't know if you saw it, but she was just telling us, like, how we're all inherently good inside. And we don't have to be good. We just are good. And, oh, man, sometimes you just need to hear that reminder, you know? Speaking of good, and you'll get this in one moment, let's go over some of uh, the news right now ahead of today's episode, which is a good one. Chris, give me my 60 minutes five, would you? Let's get into this thing. Okay, so not sure if you heard about the GoodRx thing, but the FTC filed an order against GoodRx for unauthorized sharing of third-party data. GoodRx was allegedly sharing information to Facebook, Google, and Critio, some site, to target ads through their platforms. The FTC said GoodRx violated both the FTC Act and the health breach notification rule. The order carries a $1.5 million penalty and, probably more costly, prohibits GoodRx from selling health data to advertisers. So listen, y'all, you better be mapping that data, you better have it structured, and you better not sell the sensitive stuff if you're not allowed to. GoodRx might have had some good prescriptions, but they had some bad practices in place. <laughs> hey Oh, I hate myself. I'm regularly just, I'm getting closer to just the mix, like a weird mix between a game show host and a stand-up comic with no one else there, you know, just in a room by themselves. I gotta get out. Okay. Um, hey, this story was an interesting one. Normally I ignore all the surveys that say all the things because uh, there are so many of them. In one week, it's like 80% of people love blueberries. And the next week, another one's like, ah, oh, 79% of people hate blueberries. And then we got to talk all about it. And it's just... But this New York Times article is called Americans Flunked This Test on Online Privacy. And it's based on a survey out of the University of Pennsylvania. So UPenn asked 2,000 people 17 questions on privacy, right? And I just thought this was fun because before I move on here, we live in this privacy bubble and we never truly understand how normal human beings think about or understand privacy. Like we try and dabble sometimes at family holidays, but we also know it's terrible to try and convey to someone who lives not in this world. Like there's nothing that shuts down chemistry on a first date faster than getting into the nuances of data privacy. I can tell you this. So it can be hard for us to walk the same path as the normals. We don't really comprehend anymore what people know or don't know about this world. So this New York Times article, anyway, said that the study out of University of Pennsylvania surveyed 2,000 people. The highlights from the report said 77% of them scored the equivalent of an F grade on test, uh, asking them about how apps and sites and everyone else use and sell their data. And we could probably all guess that, I suppose, just on having to have lived our lives so far. But it also makes me think about crafting policies based on consumer expectations. Like, I say this as a consumer myself. We don't know what we're doing. We're very dumb. You can't rely on us to set the bar, as this test illustrates. Hey, also, you may have noticed that President Joe Biden mentioned privacy in the State of the Union address uh, earlier this week. That was cool, actually. I didn't watch the State of the Union or the so-to, as I guess we'd say if we wanted to sound terrible. But I did Google it. I wanted to mention it here because, hey, if privacy's ever had a moment, a nod in the very presidential State of the Union address is pretty momentous, no? Anyway, when I Googled, I found Wired's article from a couple days ago on the State of the Union titled, 
quote, data privacy is now a must-hit U.S. State of the Union topic. I mean, wow. To reiterate a couple of Biden's points, if you missed the speech, he said we have to, quote, finally hold social media companies accountable for the experimenting they're doing on children for profit, end quote. Oh, my God. His call out to big tech must have incited some four-letter word text between executives anywhere from L.A. to Austin to New York. No. He also said it's time to pass a federal law to stop big tech from collecting personal data on our kids and teenagers and called on Congress to, quote, ban targeted advertising to children and impose stricter limits on the personal data that companies collect on all of us, end quote. Will that push help Congress pass a federal privacy law this year? No. All right, listen, I think we all know Phil Levi now. He's a gem. He's legendary for his information-dense dispatches at IPP conferences. He's the person I go to first with questions about data transfers, ad tech, anything UK-related, etc. He spent years and years at Field Fisher. He just opened up his own practice in the UK. And... We recorded this chat just after the big news on Meta came out a couple weeks ago. I wanted to get his take. Is this the end of personalized advertising? Should we all figure out another plan? And then I also want to talk about this EU-US data framework we're all still working on, waiting on. Is that going to succeed? He'll tell us. Lastly, before we get on with the show, just a quick shout out and a thank you to our sponsor, TerraTrue, the company I work for. They let me do this cool thing. If you want to learn a little bit more about what our software platform does, which is to enable privacy by design at scale, head on over to www.terratruehq.com and learn a little bit about us. Maybe buy some software. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. As always, thanks for listening. Love you. Phil, I'm so excited to be chatting with you again. Uh, you're someone who, you were so gracious actually with your time. You, I was, you know, you're one of the busiest uh, and hardest working people I know. And yet when I was at the IPP, I felt like you were always very kind to me in terms of taking my call or agreeing to record a podcast on whatever the subject was. Uh, and that was always a huge get for me because you always know this stuff just thick and through. And uh, I feel like people really look to you as a voice of, true knowledge and authority on this stuff. So thanks for all of that. I wanted to ask you, um, things have changed a little bit in your world since the last time we worked together. So what have you been up to lately? What's new with you? Are you still at Field Fisher? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, listen, firstly, thank you for inviting me to take part today. And, and um, the reason I always answered your call was because you always asked interesting questions. So that's <laughs> kept my interest up. Um, no, I, I, I'm no longer at Phil Fisher. I, uh, I, I, it, I left um, Phil Fisher in the middle of 2022. Um, and then I just took a break for, for a period. I, it, I've been working in privacy for, for nearly 20 years and, and just needed a bit of downtime. So I'm now back and I have um, actually set up my own small law firm called Digifile. And we are a uh, data privacy, data regulation specialist law firm, um, particularly servicing technology clients. And that launched on the 3rd of January. So I'm about, you know, a few weeks into it at the moment, and it's all gone really well. Okay, let's talk a little bit about data transfers, because I think that's something that most privacy professionals are grappling with right now. Things have felt a little bit in flux ever since, you know, 
As we know, Max Schrems successfully took down uh, two data transfer frameworks with his complaints, uh, or I should say NYOB's complaints. Um, and now we have, you know, what seems like sort of a breakthrough, depending on who you're talking to uh, in the U.S., in terms of us trying to meet the standards that the EU has been sort of asking for in framework after framework. What can you tell us about the latest uh, executive order and its impact on the future of data transfers across the two uh, continents? Uh, well, I, I, I mean, at the moment, um, the, the I mean, the situation we have is that, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Max Schrems and his organization, None of Your Business, have brought um, two legal cases that have seen a, a couple of tr transatlantic frameworks sort of shot down. So we had this thing called Safe Harbor, and then we had the Privacy Shield. And they were basically, uh, if you like, self-certification mechanisms where U.S. companies could sign up to a bunch of principles. And once they did so, and they had some oversight from the FTC and the DOC, they were considered safe to receive data from the European Union. And, um, you know, what happened is that those frameworks were shot down. They were declared sort of uh, not to provide sufficient protection for, for data from the EU that was being sent to the US. And a lot of the concerns around that were um, primarily driven over US government access to data and uh, almost, you know, sort of an on-running thing since the, sort of the Snowden revelations. And so, um, you know, so so when those when the privacy shield was shot down, the you know the, the concern was then, well, how do we continue to lawfully transfer data to the US and to other countries worldwide? I mean, obviously, the privacy shield didn't only apply to the US, but one of the things that sort of came out of that ruling was not just that the privacy shield itself was insufficient, but they also said if you're relying on other mechanisms to transfer data, notably these things called standard contractual clauses, a contractual mechanism to send data internationally, you also had to undertake a risk assessment to the jurisdiction that you'd be sending the data to and um, you know, ensuring that you put in place any additional measures that were necessary on top of the contract to make sure that the data would be um, protected to the same standard in the recipient country that it would be in the EU. But initially people thought, well, that's that's not, you know, that's not too bad. You know, we'll 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 document something, we'll create some kind of document that goes on sort of a contract that says, oh yes, we know we're transferring data to this country in the US, but it's all good because you know they're a reliable company. They will encrypt the data, you know, that you know, no problem with that. Then what happened was that we had guidance that came out from European regulators effectively saying that um well actually they they made a number of recommendations, but one of them was that effectively, that unless the data was encrypted in the EU and the encryption key was held in the EU, that if you were sending data to countries like the US, um, it, it would just never be lawful. It, well, you, know, you, you could not, if the, if the data was capable of being decrypted you know, uh, uh, by, the, by the data recipient, then there was always a risk that you know, prying governments might get their hands on that data. And so, you know, effectively, what that meant was to, the, the if you took that literally at face value, what it was essentially saying was that you cannot export data to the US unless that data is encrypted first in Europe and the key is kept in Europe, which simply doesn't work. I mean, the, the problem is that if you are, if you're using any kind of um, cloud-based service, uh, SaaS-based service where access to the data is necessary in order to provide you with the service, 
you know, that, that data cannot be provide, put, provide, given to the provider in encrypted form. You know, most SaaS services will work on the basis that the, the provider receives the data. They have to perform some analysis on it in order to provide you with whatever service it is you're looking for. Where, you know, and that, that's true for anything from email through to HR management through to, I don't know, CRM systems or whatever it happens to be. So, um, so it was a big concern because what we've really found is since that time, you know, a lot of international companies in the US and other territories have essentially been, if you like, almost operating at risk because they've had this, they've had this decision come out of the EU. They've had the subsequent very conservative European guidance, which seems to be saying to them that basically they can't receive data from the EU. So unless they stop servicing the EU market, you know, they are essentially operating at, at some level of risk. And that's where, you know, this new executive order and, and um, this new transatlantic data privacy framework comes in because it is essentially, if you like, the next iteration of these arrangements between the EU and the US where the US is trying to provide a safe mechanism for Europeans to export data to the US. And essentially what the, um, in very broad terms, you know, what the executive order aims to do is to put a bit more um, can, uh, uh, a bit more control around, you know, government surveillance activities and, and when data may be accessed by introducing sort of principles of necessity and proportionality. If um, you know, if data is going to be accessed for, for government access purposes, and in doing so, combined with sort of other redress mechanisms, basically tries to provide sufficient comfort to Europe that Europeans' data, when sent to the US under this transatlantic data privacy framework will be sufficiently safe to enable that data to move lawfully again. So I think for, you know, for a lot of US companies, um, you know, they're, they're just sitting there waiting for this to get the sort of final approval and to then start being able to rely on it and sort of all breathe a sigh of relief that they can now be, you know, they're no longer transferring data at risk, at least until, you know, Shrems 3 happens and we see what, what takes place then. Right. And so questions on that. Um, well, first of all, let me back up for a minute. When the EU said, okay, you can transfer data, but it has to be encrypted in the EU and the encryption key has to be stored in the EU, and then that's not operationally feasible, how does that mistake happen? Like, aren't you consulting with the boots on the ground in terms of like, if we said this is the only way that you may transfer data, could y'all comply with that? Or like, how does that happen? Uh, It's a really good question. I mean, I I think that... What regulators will tell you is their job is not to um, their job is to apply the law as it is set. You know, regulators don't make the law; they apply the law. You know, the 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 law was set by the um, through a combination of the legislation and the Schrems II case law. And what that case law did was to say that actually we have grave concerns that if European data is being sent to uh, territories that. Uh, where there is widespread government access to data or the perception of widespread government access to data, um, then that, that just isn't safe. And we think that's in, that breaches Europeans' fundamental rights to privacy. So what the regulators, I think, have done when they've issued this guidance is to say, well, you know, actually, if the concern is that government authorities overseas may have access to this data, then if that data is handed to an overseas provider, and it's not encrypted with a key kept in Europe, that provider could always just decrypt it. And all that it would take is for a government authority to issue some kind of summons on the on the overseas provider and say, we need you to hand over this data, decrypt it and give it to us. So there's no 
guarantee that it's safe. And I think this is probably where the biggest difference between maybe industry and the regulators is, is that a lot of industry will say, you know, in our specific case, this almost never happens. It, or We've never experienced it. It almost never happens. It would be vanishingly rare. And if it did happen, it would probably only be because the data being requested was about a very bad person, you know, and there was some kind of um, there was some kind of need to bring them to justice. I think that the European perspective on these things is, uh, you know, we the, we've seen from the Snowden revelations and and you know that the, there has been this widespread surveillance. We, uh, we you know we're not comfortable with it, and we're looking for more of a guarantee. That, are, that this will just not happen. Telling us that it's unlikely to happen isn't good enough. We want assurances that it just can't happen. And I think that's where the gulf between the two perspectives lies. And, you know, industry will often point to the fact that the GDPR is meant to be a risk-based piece of legislation. And uh, But I think, you know, quite often regulators' perception of what is risk-based and what industry's perception of what is risk-based are two mm-hmm. very different things. Right. And so, which brings me to my next question, which is that, my understanding of the criticism over the executive order is that two things, the proportionality and necessity aspect, and then also the independence of the court, um, which is supposed to handle disputes that Europeans may raise over how their data was handled, if I'm correct. And so my question is, First of all, you alluded to Schrems 3, which just my instinct as someone who's covered this for years is that Schrems will absolutely bring a Schrems 3. Um, Do you anticipate that? And also, is there disagreement, or maybe it's just Schrems saying this so far, that the European definition of proportionality and uh, and necessary may be different from the U.S.'s version of what's proportionate and necessary? Uh, I mean, as to, as to whether there will be a Schrems three, I think we can we can absolutely guarantee there will be. I mean, I, mean, it, I think Schrems has more or less said as much on the NAYB website. You know, they, they've been very vocal about the issues with the with the transatlantic data privacy framework as they see it. Um, you know, as to sort of the interpretation of these things like necessity and proportionality under US law, you know, I think that's one of the challenges with this whole area of law is that you know. Americans are not experts in European law. Europeans are not experts in American law. Sometimes each of us forgets the constraints that the other is working under. Um, and so I, I think ultimately it, it probably is only an answer that will ever be challenged. I Honestly, I wouldn't like to hazard a guess as to which way it would go. But I've not long since given up betting on this stuff. But, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think the only way we will get to a resolution is if there is another challenge. In some ways... It's helpful if Schrems does challenge it, because if if it gets challenged and it survives, it actually provides everybody with the legal certainty that they want that these transfers are now a, a lawful way of proceeding. Conversely, if Schrems challenges it and it falls again, then you know, really it is a very clear signal uh to to the European Commission and to the Department of Commerce that, you know, they they have to try harder, you know. And I what I would say from this time around, you know. I it feels to me like um the the US has gone as far as it can with an executive order. I mean it, it, the it, what what a lot of I mean one of the big criticisms that's been leveled at it has been the fact that this is being done by way of an executive order in terms of the controls around 
security, you know, the, the surveillance side of things and, you know, what happens if another president comes in and decides to overturn the executive order. I think that is a legitimate concern, actually. Mm. Um, conversely, I can also see politically uh, with the with the kind of split in Congress that exists in the US, how impossibly hard it would be to pass any kind of legislation around this. Mm. You know, I, I always try to say to people, you know, if you if you imagine trying to persuade, you know, uh, a, a House of Representatives that is, you know, at the moment Republican controlled, that we have to change national security legislation because um, some Europeans are upset about their privacy. You know, that is never going to be a winner um, before before that House. So you know, in, in terms of looking at the art of the possible, I do feel that, you know, that the, the, the US and the Biden administration is really trying whether our courts will consider that to be good enough is is something at this point I just couldn't tell. Clearly, there's a there's a very big roadshow by the Department of Commerce and by the European Commission to put forward the argument that it is. But um, you know, they are they're, they're you know, if you like, more political entities. They're, the courts will view it in a very different light. So, for folks who were using Privacy Shield, were you know just crestfallen when it fell. Um, what do you tell them now about this new executive order? Uh, what what needs to happen next for that to be operational? Uh, well, the, the next thing that has to happen, uh, effectively, is that uh, um, an adequacy decision has to be adopted by the European Commission. And that basically is, uh, you know, the executive arm of the EU issuing a decision that says this is now live. You can you can now rely on it to do to do the transfers. In order to get through to that point, there's a process of scrutiny by the European Parliament and by the European Data Protection Board, and that that's kind of ongoing at the moment. Um, I'm, I think we can be fairly confident that the European Commission will adopt its adequacy decision. Um, you know, put bluntly, there's just too much trade dependence on it for it not to go through. Mm. So I, I, I think we can assume it will. I'm absolutely certain uh the both the parliament and the edpb will raise certain concerns about it um and you know again it will just come it will come down to a question of it will get adopted it will get challenged what happens next for you know for organizations you know a lot of the clients i speak to and companies i've seen comment on this um you know there are some people who are saying well you know i'm, I'm very I've, I've got real reservations about investing in this if ultimately it's just going to be shot down again. And so maybe the best thing to do is to wait until there is a court decision and then adopt it. I think my response to that is at the moment, back to my earlier point, there is a lot, there are a lot of companies right now who are effectively operating at risk. And you know, if if, if we think of the 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 um the you know the ocean between the Europe and the US as being the pond, you know, at the moment it's like we're chucking lily pads down on the pond for people to run across. And yeah. They're just about stepping to water, and another lily pad is thrown in front of them. So, I, you know, I think it's at the moment we are operating at risk. It is this is giving you a lifeline for the time being. And frankly, I would probably jump on it. And if it gets shot down, well, that's a problem we'll have to deal with at that point in time. But at the moment, it is it is providing a way forward that we don't currently have. And so, in the meantime, like at this moment, are people is the best move to continue doing those standard contractual clauses with the transfer impact assessments? Yeah, well, at the moment, it's it's really the only thing you can do. I mean, I, 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 you know, nobody, you know, the reality of all of this, the sad reality of all of this is, is that there's a great divergence between sort of theory and practice here in that nobody is going to turn off their data transfers. You know, if you're a multinational organization, 
where your parent company is in the US, you're not going to stop HR data transfers back to the parent organization because of data transfer rules. It, you know, these things have to happen in order for, for uh, organizations to keep operating. So the um uh, so you know at the moment it's it's a question of well what can you do? And okay, we know we know we may not be strictly meeting the letter of the regulation, but we're gonna do our damnedest to try and get as far as we can with it. So, you know, organizations are still putting in place the standard contractual clauses. They are still doing their transfer impact assessments. They are still doing what they can to ensure that their data is, you know, protected when it is exported. It's just that what that can may be is not necessarily to the standard that European regulators would like to see. Okay, perfect. Okay, now let's move on. Um, in the time I have left with you to talk a little bit about this big Medicase that really uh, blew up the media. I mean, everyone was talking about it. It was a big deal um, because of the potential implications. Um, could you just talk us through at a high level what happened in the Medicase with the uh, between the Irish DPC and Meta. Sure. So, uh, phase three. This was this was again uh, Max Schrems once more, uh, who brought a complaint against um, against the various of the Meta companies, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, WhatsApp. And his concern was essentially that when you signed up to these services, uh, as part of the sign up process, uh, there was a stage where you had to accept their terms and conditions. And above the terms and conditions, it disclosed that your data would be processed in accordance with Meta's data policy, uh, effectively their privacy policy. And within that data policy, it disclosed that, amongst other things, you know how your data would be used, but it included the fact that data would be used for behavioral advertising. And um, Shrem's complained about that on a number of grounds, uh, one of which was that uh, his perspective was that by agreeing to the terms, all the processing that was taking place under the data policy was effectively conditioned on consent, uh, which is one of the lawful bases for processing data under the GDPR. And Meta's response to that was <clears throat> to say, "No, we don't rely on uh, we don't rely on consent. We actually rely on this ground called um, contractual necessity." You know, uh, the, the Meta platforms are um, you know ultimately advertising funded platforms. You know, users are very aware of this. They sign up with that knowledge. And, you know, in order to, to provide the services, we need to process data for these advertising purposes. And um, what happened was that the, the Irish Data Protection Commission originally produced uh, one decision, which was actually uh, quite favourable towards um, to, towards Meta. It said, no, you know, Meta wasn't relying on consent. It was quite clearly relying on contractual necessity. Um, in principle, contractual necessity was available to it. It did go on to say that they felt there was some transparency failings on Meta's behalf, um, but because it was a decision that impacted a number of member states, the Irish DPC had to pass the decision up to the sort of European Data Protection Board for review by the other authorities and, and their comment. Um, a number of the other authorities, 10 in total, uh, raised objections, and so that triggered a dispute resolution process at the European Data Protection Board level. And the what has happened in sort of in the past week or so has been that the European Data Protection Board has issued its decision back to the Irish DPC and told the Irish DPC how to rule. And what they came back to do uh, was effectively say um, they they sort of if you like found against Meta on two grounds. One was this point around transparency. They they didn't feel that Meta was sufficiently transparent about its use of uh, of, of data for for advertising purposes and. What they said was that it's not just enough to list the purposes that you process data for and 
the legal bases you rely on, you actually have to link at a very granular level what data you use for what processing operations, pursuing what purposes to what lawful basis. You know, that is a decision, you know, although although this is in the context of our tech, actually they're saying this is what privacy notices generally need to do. And that decision is going to impact absolutely everybody that is out there. You know, my personal reading of it is it's almost akin to putting your record of processing online. It's a very, very difficult thing for people to do, for, for organizations to do, unless you have very simple processing operations. So that's, you know, that's the, the kind of the first point. The second point was that the um, European Data Protection Board came back and said, no, you cannot rely on contractual necessity for, for behavioral advertising. And they looked at a number of factors in this regard. They sort of, they asked the question, well, they said, first off, you know, advertising isn't necessary to provide what is fundamentally a communication service. That's what social networks are. So no, we don't think it is necessary. Secondly, they looked at things like what were users' expectations? And they looked at the fact that, you know, the way that Metro advertised itself was as a, you know, as a as a platform that enabled people to communicate with one another. It didn't sort of, you know, it didn't say in kind of marketing that, you know, we're an ad-funded communications platform or an ad-funded social network. So that unfortunately played against Metro as well. Um, and, and then they looked at things like data subject rights. So they said, actually, individuals under the GDPR always have a right to object to use of their data for direct marketing. And if you can object to something, then clearly it can't be necessary to perform the contract. Uh, and then finally, there was a kind of related point to the transparency issue where they said, well, if, if you haven't been sufficiently transparent about it, then people can't really know what they're contracting for. So again, you can't rely on this contractual necessity ground. So it was kind of, you know, it was, it, I guess, it, it, it was a bad day for Meta. It was a, a bad day for the um, Data Protection Commission. I think a lot of commentators feel that, um, you know, the, the, the DPC came in for a bit of a drubbing over it. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's possibly a, that's possibly a little bit of an unfair view. Um, I think what, you know, when you look at the decision, the there were 10 authorities that objected to the Irish DPC. That means there were 17 that didn't. Actually, sorry, 16, if you include the DPC, 16 that didn't. Uh, which, you know, so to me, what it really says is there's there's um, this kind of lack of harmony, this this lack of unified thinking across the across the EDPB. Some people point out that to reach the appeal process, the, the EDPB had to have a two-thirds majority. So clearly by decision stage, they've got a bit more alignment. But actually in terms of how people were approaching the problem originally, um, you know, there obviously were more authorities that either didn't disagree with the, the DPC or couldn't be bothered to disagree with the DPC. So I, I think, you know, it's a bit of, poor DPC has taken a bit of a bashing over it. Um, and, you know, clearly fundamentally it's going to affect how a lot of people think about this in terms of transparency and the lawful basis that they rely on for targeted advertising. So it's a very significant decision. On that note, do we do we have a sense, do you have a sense, that many more firms that engage in behavioral advertising are using contractual necessity to do it? Or was Meta sort of taking some creative license and they exist in a category of their own? Uh, I, 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 I would certainly say the, the, the more common grounds you see people rely on for legitimate interests, uh, sorry, for behavioral advertising is a combination of consent and or legitimate interests. Um, you know, from time to time, you do see people use contractual necessity. It is a rarer ground. I think the, um, you know, possibly maybe due to concerns about that the ruling like the one that would happen with the DPC did occur. I think with, you know, the, the, the 
part of the problems that people have though is that you know, if, if from the industry perspective, people the concern is that if you ask people to switch to opt-in for advertising, consent for advertising, you know, very few people will do so. And I think the experience is that some of the, you know, some of the big social networks have had in the wake of Apple's move to consent for tracking have clearly evidenced those concerns are, uh, if you like, real concerns, you know, regardless of whatever your view of behavioral advertising is, clearly the numbers will drop if you ask people to opt-in. Um Conversely, if you rely on legitimate interest as a ground for processing, we've seen before from the European Data Protection Board them pumping out guidance saying, we don't think behavioural advertising is a legitimate interest. So in a way, um, you know, really what we're seeing here is the, the EDPB saying to people, well, actually, we think behavioural advertising should just be done on consent because our guidance says we don't think it's a legitimate interest. This latest decision, we don't really think it's a contractually necess- necessary either. There really is no other re- available commercial ground to rely on. So you're going to have to be looking at consent. I don't, you know, I, I, I think at the moment, um, I'd be very surprised to see anybody make that kind of shift just because far too many organizations are dependent on targeted advertising and reluctant to implement consent. So what do you do if you can't rely on um, contractual necessity and relying on consent would be a nightmare? excuse me, in terms of getting those opt-ins, what are companies left with decision-wise? Like, what's my move if I want to continue to to use, to employ behavior advertising, but I want to stay out of the EDPB's headlines? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's a couple of answers to that. I think one really depends on the level of enforcement that takes place. I mean, at the moment, there tends to be uh, a, a reaction by a lot of industry where they say, well, of course, this was going to happen. It was Meta, or it was Google, or it was Amazon. You know, when you when you see enforcement taken against the the uh, the big players, you, there tends to be a slight false sense of security by the rest of the industry that you know it happened to them because they're big. It wouldn't happen to me. I'm too small. I, you know, I think if there was more um, more and more aggressive enforcement across the wider industry, you might see that that behavior start to shift, and then maybe there would be more of a push towards consent. Challenge there, of course, being that DPAs tend to be um, you know, pretty underfunded and just don't have the resource they need to do that level of investigation. The other, the other potential aspect of this is, you know, whether uh, the the EDPB in, in their report did talk about you know um less intrusive ways of conducting advertising and particularly they call that contextual advertising. And it may be that you start to see some organizations who are perhaps a little bit more, you know, um, either want to be seen to be more compliant or a little bit more risk averse, um, will maybe start to make a shift towards contextual advertising. You know, the I think honestly, you hear different things from different people about that. Some people say, well, you know, contextual advertising used to be awful, but you know, over the years we've gotten much better at it, and actually, you can get similar levels of return on contextual advertising to what you can achieve through behavioural advertising. Other people will sort of take the view that contextual advertising is a long way off the kind of returns you can get through behavioral advertising be very reluctant to implement it. Truthfully, I don't know the answer to that, but you may find that there's more of a push and more of a switch towards contextual advertising. I mean, in my mind, we have this decision and then we have which, you know, yes, it's meta, but also because it's meta, you know, the the stories on it on behalf of the media, at least, are far-reaching. Like, everyone's reporting on it. Everyone's hearing about it. It really was, like, to me, like, the shot heard around the world of, like, is this the end of behavioral advertising? And so I feel like a lot of people are, at the very least, paying attention to it. But um, 
That's a really interesting point you say there, actually, because I think, I mean, that has been something that I've seen people say a lot, as you know, it is the end of behavioral advertising. I think it's really important to be clear about this. But, you know, Meta uh, and, is, uh, and other organizations, they're not banned from using behavioral advertising. This was a, a question around what is the the legal basis you rely on for that behavioral advertising? So if you if you can if you move to a legal basis that um, that the EDPB does accept, you know, like consent, then you know there is no then in principle behavioral advertising can absolutely continue. So it's, the issue here was around using the incorrect legal basis, not behavioral advertising per se. So I, you know, I think um, I think. There are developments still to happen in space. We'll see what happens. Meta obviously is going to appeal. You know, that will probably take a couple of years at least to run through the various court processes. So we may not get a final, final answer on this for a period of time. Um, in the meantime, you know, of course, there's also things like the uh, the IAB's um, transparency and consent framework appeal that's going through the CJEU as well. Um, but, you know, notably on that, the, the Belgian authority recently has said it has approved IB Europe's um, action plan to remedy the transparency and consent framework. What that action plan is it hasn't, to my knowledge, yet been made public. But if the if if IB Europe has found a way of implementing their TCF consent framework um, around ads in a way that the authority that the authorities will accept, then you may find that behavioural advertisers will switch over to this new version of the TCF, and that will provide a way forward as well. So no need to panic about the future of behavioral advertising. It's, it's too important to the marketplace, frankly, for it to completely go away. And there's nothing to indicate that this is the end of that. It's just that you need to make sure that you're doing it in a way that will satisfy the data protection authorities. Uh, certainly no end, no end to advertising. Um, I think it, the, the manner in which advertising is delivered may change. Um, but advertising, you know, has always been here and it always will be here.